Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Andy Matushak. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much. It's a great time to be here. So Andy, we're going to spend the next hour talking about your work, but Andy, when people ask you what your mission in life is or what you're most focused on right now or your the goal of your work is, how do you sort of crystallize it into a minute or two in terms of what you're really trying to do? I try to make tools to expand what people can think and do. Uh, when you think about the core problem that you are trying to solve, it's that learning kind of sucks right now or or that it's we're not optim- learning optimally or what what is the problem you're you're addressing? Well, first off, you can think about it as a problem in a negative sense or like a, an opportunity in a positive sense. It's some, some kind of strange four-dimensional crystal. You know, one piece of that is kind of like, oh, like learning stuff's kind of hard. Uh, does it, does it need to be that way? And, or maybe the flip side of that, the opportunity wise is like, uh, you know, what's the closest we can get to kind of I know kung fu style matrix kind of visions? But I don't know. Like you kind of rotate that crystal 30 degrees and it looks something like, Knowledge workers are surprisingly bad at knowledge work and don't really seem to know it. I I use bad in kind of a loose sense here. But if if you compare, for instance, the seriousness of their practices to those of 99th percentile athletes or musicians or something, it's really interesting how casually they, they treat their practice, myself included. That's fascinating. Uh, activities like note-taking, for instance, are... Um, yeah, completely folksy and ad hoc and unsystematized. And no one really has like a, a clear sense of what it means to like accrete insight. Yeah. So paint a little bit of, of your utopia or, or <laughs> if you achieve your mission, how will the world be different? Sure. Well, a little while back, the Falcon Heavy uh, had its first launch. And when it was on its way back down, it managed to do this kind of synchronized pirouette landing of two boosters at once coming down and landing perfectly. And, you know, the feed, of course, showing the split screen. And they landed at the same time and, and stayed standing. And I was sitting on a park bench at the time watching this during my, during my lunch. And I just, I stood up and started cheering and screaming to no one in particular. It was totally involuntary. I, I want the world to have more moments like that. So there may be moments of achievement. There may be moments of uh, aesthetic actualization, uh, maybe as you experience, uh, moments of profound beauty, moments of discovery, whatever it is that makes us more ourselves, that fills us with wonder and joy. Let's have more of that. Yeah. And so what, what are some bottlenecks that are pre- preventing that or, or what would unleash some of those bottlenecks? Well, thinking is really surprisingly hard. And even people who are maybe ostensibly pretty serious about thinking, don't don't necessarily seem to have a great idea about exactly how that happens. Uh, people who come up with uh, very surprising or, or innovative ideas, how exactly does that happen? Well, it seems like a bolt out of the blue. Like, what is the process? What are the prerequisites? What 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 things come up? You'll see countless biographies and memoirs that have kind of notions of that. Uh, we don't we don't really know, but uh, you know, it's something like you know, we we try to do some good work, we read some things, we write some things, and then something wonderful happens. We try to do some art every day and. Uh, maybe we create something incredible. Can we do better than that? I, I don't know, but I'm really interested in the question and trying to create environments which, uh, you know, maybe don't guarantee success, but make it a little bit more likely. Um, I'm very inspired by past environments of what Brian Eno calls seniors, yeah. 
these places where it's not so much that there's like an individual genius doing something as much as, my goodness, there's something in that environment, whether it's there's an idea that suddenly unlocks a bunch of doors, or maybe it's just a contrary idea that um, helps people think in a new way, or, or there's some, some kind of social action. Think about the, the Bauhaus or <laughs> playing in Copenhagen in the early 20th century for physics or something like this. Uh, can we create these environments more consistently? For San Francisco, it's, it's interesting uh, the degree to which less wrong has been yeah. that kind of environment, at least you know, maybe eight years ago for a bunch of people. Yeah. And what do we not fully appreciate about genius as it relates to individual genius or, or not fully understand or misunder, misinterpret or, and how do we, th how should we think about going forward in terms of, you know, real world genius versus online genius? That's a great question. I, honestly, I, I don't fully know the answer. I, I, I can kind of suggest a, a uh, few points that, that seem promising or interesting. I, I think one of them that, that seems interesting is, is that we really, we just have no idea. Um, certainly sociologists have a bunch to say about it, but uh, you know, you'll find kind of contrary advice as much as you find a chord. There's just kind of obvious things you might want to avoid in an environment that's trying to produce genius. But I mean, just for a completely different example, it doesn't even necessarily have to be social in some sense. If you consider someone trying to be a, a filmmaker or try, trying to make, say, a really challenging uh, film from an editorial perspective, something like Memento, you imagine them doing it in the world where we don't have nonlinear video editors and in the world where we do, the likelihood that any individual comes upon that film uh, seems very different in those two scenarios. And uh, one of the ways in which those environments are different uh, is the nature of the fundamental objects and actions that exist in those things. What, what are the nouns and verbs uh, kind of prior to a non-linear video editor that the verb you know, might look something like a splicing film you know, with like a literal razor and some tape. And then afterwards, uh, because the verb is a little bit more like uh, maybe it's dragging or scrubbing or something like this. Uh, now it's a continuous action and uh, the, the impact of, of your action um is a, sort of a, a real-time experiment instead of a, a plan, plan and cut kind of experiment, which produces a totally different kind of a creative relationship. You, you published an essay recently called Why, why Books, Books Don't Work. Uh, can you explain the core of why they don't work and the idea of transmissionism that you mentioned in the essay? I suppose first I should caveat that <laughs> uh, you know, perhaps books and work uh, sh should have asterisks next to them. Uh, the piece specifically concerns informational texts and um, by work, I specifically mean um, to absorb knowledge um, or, or to walk away from that book with knowledge. So, so uh, with that out of the way, I guess I'll just observe that uh, the, the trade-off between the time one spends reading, well, we're, we're, in, we're in a VC context, so I'll just poke fun, sapiens say, and, and the amount of insight or knowledge that one durably walks away from that book with, uh, that trade-off looks very strange. Uh, it, it makes sense in the context of, say, entertainment. Sure, it, it's a fun book to read. Uh, maybe the prose is appealing. Uh, it, it, it tickles your intellect to engage with. So, like, that, that's all great, you know. Um, but also, it maybe takes you 12 or 15 hours or something. And I think a lot of people read, at least with the sub rasa intention, that, yeah, well, there's a bunch of important ideas in this book, and I want to engage with those ideas. And I think those ideas might, like, influence the way that I think about society or invention or, you know, maybe if I'm uh, I'm trying to be an inventor or an innovator or something, it might you know, influence what I pursue next. 
And, and I think they mostly just kind of don't. Uh, when I talk to people who uh, read informational texts, uh, it's, it's very common that they, they remember basically nothing of what they've read. They, they can kind of give the blurb on the cover and, and they, they can't really go into any depth at all. Uh, and sometimes that's kind of what they intend, but other times it's totally not. Like they got really interested in X and they went down a whole big Wikipedia rabbit hole and I'll say like, wow, that's so interesting. Like, tell me about X. And it's like, uh, um, <laughs> and until that moment, they really thought that they had like learned a bunch about X during that rabbit hole dive. Uh, and, and like, actually they didn't. And it's, it's that scenario that seems jarring. You know, if it's like, well, you went down the rabbit hole cause it was fun, uh, and, and you didn't walk away with anything like that. that. That's totally fine. But, um, the strange part is going down the rabbit hole, believing that you've some, somehow like made some increment or, or like you, you've, you've built something durable, uh, and then it, it's suddenly like, like a cloud, like you try to put your weight on it and it says, my goodness, that didn't work. So, so why does that happen? Why do we not understand it or, or, or why are we not able to reproduce it? And why do we think that we can't? Yeah, you, you asked earlier about this term transmissionism and that's where this one comes in. So there's this kind of straw man idea in, in learning science that no, no one really believes anymore, but it's kind of implicitly what, um, what people acted on for a long time, which is, uh, if you imagine kind of an, a very old school classroom with a, a teacher kind of hectoring a, a bunch of kids. The notion is kind of like, they just need to sit and pay attention. They need to listen. And the teacher's ears, uh, teacher's words will fill their ears. And it is as if, uh, they are an empty vessel, uh, which is being filled with knowledge as, as the teacher's voice passes over them. And uh, if they failed to absorb some of that knowledge, that was really, that was their problem. They were, say, distracted, looking out the window, uh, not really paying attention. All they needed to do was, like, have the teacher's words pass over them. Uh, we don't believe that in a classroom setting. And yet it's, like, kind of the model that uh, most people typically use when they're reading books. Certainly, uh, some people read books with uh, all kinds of additional engagement. Uh, they might uh, write summaries or engage in reading discussion groups. And that's not really what I'm talking about. Instead, what I'm talking about is the notion of like, I'm going to sit on a bench and I'm going to like read each of the words. And then I'm going to have this expectation that those words are going to fill up the vessel of knowledge in my brain. Um, that is the notion of transmissionism. And it's, um, it's, it's just kind of empirically not true. Yeah. And so why do you think books have been the, you know, remain the dominant medium for, for content absorption? Like, why haven't we figured this out or? Why haven't we changed something? Oh, okay, sure. Um, well, books are really great, <laughs> to, to be clear. <laughs> uh, they're very cheap to print. If it's an ebook, it's basically free. Certainly, given prior materials that have, that have existed until very recently, uh, it's kind of the best technology available. Although, you know, in many contexts, you see other forms being used. So, for instance, how does one get to be a scientist? It's really, it's not by reading books. It's by apprenticing yourself. How does one... Uh, get to be an investment banker. Uh, I guess I don't really know. But my understanding is that it looks kind of similar. Uh, how does one get to be a pro tennis player? It's not by reading books. Uh, so, uh, you know, in certain domains, uh, we've kind of learned how to uh, convey or absorb or build knowledge uh, in other ways. Uh, and, and books are, books are, I don't know, some kind of, um, and here again, I'm talking about informational texts, uh, some, some kind of lowest common denominator that we can fall back on when it's too expensive or too inconvenient or too unknown to do otherwise. But I think implicit in your question was, was maybe a wondering of like, 
okay, but like we've had computers for a while now and it seems like computers, you know, computers solve a lot of problems. So like probably they should solve this problem too. And like, why hasn't that happened yet? Is that kind of what you're wondering? Okay, right. Well, I mean, why should we expect it to have happened? Like what exactly is it about computers that we uh, maybe expect might uh, improve this situation? Like, like what comes to mind for you? Well, sort of what you were doing with um, the quantum computing piece, you go like, uh, you know. Okay, but that's cheating. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, so I can't go back in time before I knew the answer, <laughs> which is uh, also why I didn't learn that much in high school. <laughs> well, let, let me just ask you a question about books for a second. So I, this thought, some people have this thought that maybe nonfiction books could be a lot shorter, maybe 20 pages, 30 pages instead of 150, 200 or whatever. But some people think, no, no, there's something inherent about the process of reading 150, 200 pages, even if it's just repetition that gets the mind working in an interesting way that articles or, or shorter form books could, could never do. Do you, do you buy that? Yeah, I think um, like yes and more and with some asterisks. So I'll try to unpack. Um, we know very little about how memories are formed and how understanding happens. One thing that we do know is that repeated stimulus of a particular idea is a really good way to cause it to be encoded durably. Uh, and so if you read a long book about a topic and despite its length, it is sufficiently engaging to actually like get you to pay attention to it and, and think about it at least a little bit over many days, uh, then you're going to have a much higher chance of successfully encoding that knowledge than if you had read an article in 15 minutes. But I think there's more than just recall. Like pe- people, people want the takeaways um, and sometimes that's all that's useful uh, from someone's inquiry into a field. But often everything around that is as useful or more useful or is a prerequisite for doing anything with the takeaways. I'll, I'll try to describe how. For a lot of nonfiction, the resulting claims, I mean, sapiens, what, like so many of those claims are not falsifiable. Yeah. And, and that's true even in even in books that seem less uh, tenuous than that. And so really what the book represents is a way of seeing things and a way of thinking about things. And um, what you were reading through all of those pages is that mental model uh, unwinding on a topic. And so what you walk away with maybe um, is a weak mental model of that person's process. Even if we leave the takeaways aside, and then I made this other point that I don't know how true this is. There's some structural reason to believe it. There are all these aphorisms in business. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm not a business person, so I'm, I'm going to be slow at coming up with great examples. But if you don't see yourself working with a person for the rest of your life, don't work with them for a day. Sure. That's great. Let's roll with that. Um, that's a takeaway. And like, if, if I wrote a book about, I don't know, co-founder dynamics or something, and I had like multiple chapters on that idea, you might find yourself really wishing that I had just like given you that sentence. And yet at the same time, like that sentence, that sentence is not a fundamental law. It's not a law of reality. It is a rule of thumb. It is a heuristic. So without the couple of chapters, and yeah, maybe they could be edited or whatever, but without the whole framework that gives rise to that intuition and that heuristic, it's it's not really a useful or applicable heuristic. I mean, maybe you can bootstrap yourself to some understanding by using it, but you don't have the, the network of ideas that was used uh, to create the heuristic. And so it's just as likely to become what's... Um, what Catmull calls a briefcase handle, where it's as if uh, you've gone to 
pick the briefcase full of ideas up from off the table and you've just like walked off with the handle and the rest of the briefcase is still sitting on the table and sometimes you you kind of you see a company where like the whole company is like people walking around like with just a briefcase handles so that's that's the sense in which i i guess i have some objection about everybody wishing things would be shorter that said a lot of books are, are simply not worth reading and you, uh, i think people often kind of torture themselves with some kind of sense of obligation either to finish a book that they've started or to read something that people are talking about <laughs> one, one, one framing I often use when I'm kind of thinking about some, some new book that just came out and like people are talking about it and I, I feel like some, some weird societal pressure to read it it's like you know I, there are still a couple of Milan Kundera novels that I haven't read and like why would I read one of my favorite authors why would I read some, some new novel when there are still these things that have stood the test of time they're incredible that i haven't read i don't know yeah for the record i thought the book of laughter and forgetting was overrated <laughs> I, I think i read all of i only liked unbearable lightness of being so here's why i think uh computers should have changed books by now okay. I mean, we're social um so i should be able to see who's reading what i'm reading at the same time what they think about it you know it, it, i expect it to be annotated I'd ex- you know, by the author himself, I expect you know new context to have emerged since since the book was released. I'd expect to be able to yeah enga- engage with it. I'd, I'd expect for it to sort of identify how much I'm retaining, <laughs> and then sort of evolve in real time based on that. And I'm just sort of riffing. Sure, yeah, no, I mean, I I, I love it. Um, I I find myself uh, excited about lots of things in this domain, and I always have to kind of ask myself like. Great. Like, so what job is that doing exactly? So some of the, some of the, uh, some of the things that you just mentioned, I think they're doing a, a very important job, which is to create a stronger emotional connection uh, with the content. Uh, something that Michael Nielsen and I have been thinking about a little bit is, you know, film and, and video forms successfully create much stronger emotional connections for like a given level of engagement. And it's really powerful for a variety of reasons. And so, you know, maybe if you, if you knew that uh, your buddies or a bunch of people you respected were, were reading something and kind of thinking seriously about it, that would make you feel more invested. Uh, you'd enjoy reading more and that's valuable in itself. It might not help you understand more deeply. Um, but, uh, if you really took to that, to its conclusions, uh, it could. So uh, one of the more effective forms we've developed for really comprehending literature of all forms seriously uh, are well-organized seminar discussions. Uh, they're fantastic when they're, when they're organized well, uh, because they, they, they not only push you to synthesize, evaluate, uh, compare, uh, but, but also to engage with others' conceptions of what you had thought was the same thing. On a shallow level, that might look like debate, uh, but I think it's actually much more interesting when it, it's not about debate as much as, uh, wow, look at all of these different ways of seeing this or look at all the different impacts this is having on people. Yeah. So in the essay, you also talked about the concept of, of metacognition. Um, talk about what role that plays in learning, whether we can learn it and how our you know, reading tools can be designed to better produce it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a great entree to this topic might be some of the reading techniques that people already employ and employ really effectively. So people might highlight when they read, what, what's the purpose of doing that? Well, it kind of sharpens your attention. It, it kind of purports to make sure that you're not uh, kind of just scanning over the words, but it's kind of in one ear and out the other, so to speak. It's, it's trying 
uh, to maybe make you do a certain kind of monitoring to decide what's important. Um, overall, that's a pretty weak technique. So we could kind of move up the stack and we could do something like uh, a sophisticated reader will ask themselves questions about what they've just read. They'd say like, um, how does that comport with the other writing I've read on this topic? Does it, does it conflict in any way? What are those ways? Uh, what surprises me about that? What doors does it open up? And that's doing uh, a whole bunch of interesting things. But one of the things it does, of course, is to um, check your understanding of the material, uh, as well as to kind of um, reframe that material in your in your own ontology. A bunch of these activities, and I'll kind of summarize them as kind of monitoring uh, your own activities, um, engaging in self-regulation, where um, where a process that normally kind of runs itself, you're you're going to reach in and say like, oh, actually, no, I, I need to reread that section. Uh, and also all kinds of interesting executive control and functions. So if, if you're to read a book and it references a concept that you think you understand, but then you feel like there's some implication in the passage that like seems really important to the author and like it's just not hitting you, that that decision, first off, to notice that, and then second off, to decide what am I going to do about that? Generate solutions. Well, I know I read, you know, this other person talking about this, like, let me go check that out again. And then finally to like exert the executive control to say like, okay, so what that means is I'm going to stop doing this semi-automatic thing I was doing, which is like to read the words linearly on the page and turn those pages until I feel like getting up and like put that book away and like get this other book. All of that is metacognition. And let's get into the, the quantum uh, computing piece you, you and Michael Nielsen worked on together. What were some of the, uh, problems you were trying to solve for, and what were some of the, the solves um, that you, you incorporated? Sure. Um, the fun thing about talking about this project is, is there's there's kind of like the, the, the ostensible research questions and um, things we didn't expect. <laughs> uh, and it pairs well with the metacognition uh, and the metacognitive questions, actually. Okay, so um, really quickly, Quantum Country. Quantum Country is a weird kind of uh, quantum computing textbook, question mark. It looks kind of like a e-textbook thing, I guess, except that uh, every few minutes as you read, um, there are these little lightweight interactions, kind of swipey, Tinder-like interactions where it's like, hey, so you, you just read uh, a bunch of stuff about qubits. So uh, if you were to represent a, a qubit as a, a vector, like how many dimensions would it be again? And like what, what kind of number are the numbers in that vector? And um, those are really simple declarative questions, but uh, later on, um, we might ask things like, well, why might it not be a good idea to to represent a qubit with this kind of matter? And um, you know, this is, these are not fill-in-the-blank questions. These are not like multiple choice, choose, you get graded. It's not any of that. Instead, it's a, it's a one-second interaction where you, you look at the question, you think about it, and then you just flick like, yeah, I... I remembered that, or I feel good about my internal answer. You just kind of think it to yourself. Um, or I didn't actually, no, uh, I didn't. And that happens every few minutes as you read. So, um, the, the motivation there was getting back to this, these claims about books, uh, where people don't seem to remember things, boy, uh, for a field that's already pretty hard, it seems extra bad if you don't remember things. And, um, Quantum computing is this famously challenging field to learn. Is, is you know people make jokes about it. So it's like oh my gosh, if you think you understand you know quantum mechanics, you, know, you really don't. So, what if one of the reasons for that is that 
these ideas, um, like ideas in many fields, are very tall in their dependency graph. So uh, a given notion that you might be trying to learn on you know, page 10, uh, well, really, that depends on three notions from the last couple pages, each of which depend on like four or five notions from the previous few pages. So it's building up that notation and those definitions and those concepts really, really quickly, which means uh, you can't have had time to put them in your long-term memory, which means you just read them, so they're in your working memory. And we know you can only juggle a few things in your working memory at once. So maybe the real reason that that concept you're trying to learn feels so hard is that it's simply putting too many demands on your working memory. And it's not that quantum computing is like essentially hard in, in some insurmountable fashion. So the, uh, the interactions with these interstitial questions that I mentioned, uh, their role is to, to make memory a solved problem. Uh, they, they, they kind of, they follow this interesting tradition that's been surprisingly successful at that, uh, uh, somewhat pointed or, or stark aspiration. But anyway, uh, so, so you answer these questions and, uh, the, the way in which they make memory a solved problem is that if you, uh, fail to remember the answer to one of the questions, then, um, it will appear in the next little area. And, um, uh, so you'll, you'll get another chance to see it. And, and in fact, uh, the next day you'll get a little email saying like, Hey, so, uh, you, you just spent like four hours reading this thing. So, um, let's maybe not lose everything you just read. Let's spend just a couple of minutes, four or five minutes and flick through those questions again. And it might feel pretty bad. Like, Oh gosh, am I, how am I going to have to review these every day? Like that seems pretty bad, but it, it turns out that, uh, once you have remembered the question in the essay and then you kind of, you know, remembered it shortly thereafter in a little review session, we sent you, Oh, now we can, we can wait a while. Uh, right now what we're trying actually uh, with the newest cohort is uh, waiting two weeks. That's working pretty well too. So, uh, you know, read the essay, answer the question. You remember it? Good. Like let's, let's look at it again in five days. And again, this is a question you're going to spend maybe two, three seconds looking at. Cool. You remember it still? Okay. We're going to look at it again in two weeks. Remember it still? Okay. Like let's go out to a month. So like your total contact time for a given question to achieve, uh, one month, uh, and actually in, in, we have about, a hundred users who have achieved a bunch of two month uh, demonstrated retention is really quite small. And what is it about the memory that makes it so that cramming doesn't work, but that this sort of phased out approach does? Yeah, this is, this is called the, the spacing effect. Uh, I guess I could interpret your question physiologically. I don't know if that is known. Um, so I, I could speculate, but that's probably not so helpful. So instead, I'll, I guess I'll just. Uh, sure that empirically, um, it is the case that if you have 10 minutes to spend studying uh, a given thing, you are way better off uh, spacing those 10 minutes out um, over some period of time. What the period is kind of depends empirically on what you're studying, but um, it, irrespective of what you choose there, it's better than if you do it all at once. And are you of the, the school of thought that if you can't reproduce something, you don't really fully understand it? Or put differently, some people might define themselves by saying, hey, it's less about reproducing it and more about learning about this new way of thinking. I mean, some people say about fiction, right? Um, it's, a, yeah. you know, I put, I'm put in someone else's head or I don't, certain types of nonfiction even make me think in certain ways and it's less about reproducing it. Do you sympathize with, with that or how do you respond to that? Understanding is multifarious. Uh, and yeah, there's, there's no, there's no simple answer to that question. I think it really depends on what the material is and what you aspire to do with it and exactly what your motivations are. And also like what your motivations are in this moment. Like for instance, some people read the quantum book and they, they don't really engage with the questions because they're kind of just checking it out. They're like, ah, oh, I hear heard about this quantum thing. Like, 
Uh, you know, what's that all about anyway? They have no desire to you know remember all of that material forever, and that's very different from a undergrad who's uh, reading the same thing. And um, certain types of understanding maybe don't require durable memory. And in fact, it's a little unsettling, but um, you know, I, I certainly believe it's possible that you could, for instance, spend a whole bunch of time hanging out with uh, a bunch of people who have certain predilections and then leave those people behind. And a week later, like not really remember any of the details of what you discussed. And yet like your opinions on a variety of things are probably subtly altered and your values are probably changed and so on and so forth. And so that happens. And so how do you think about your own learning? Let's say you were trying to learn uh, a topic like quantum computing or, or something else. And, and what are you, are you trying to learn? I'm curious. How do you, what do you understand about learning that's different in terms of how you incorporate it for, for your own? Are you doing sort of, you know, uh, Quizlet or Anki regularly or what, what can people learn from the way you learn or wish you learned if you don't do it? Sure. So Anki refers to a spaced repetition memory system, which uses some of the same fundamental uh, concepts as quantum country with, um, I guess, kind of a different set of metacognitive benefits. We didn't really talk about the metacognitive impact of uh, quantum country's design, so maybe we'll get back to that. Yes. But um, yeah, so I, I have an extensive Anki practice. I've been using that for a few years. Um, it's, it's been quite transformative for my life. And yet it, it is only a part of how I learn I think the, the, the overriding principle of what I'm looking for in approaches to learning is accretion. Uh, I, I, I want to find activities where when I do the activity, it is not, uh, a castle made of sand, which the tide rolls in and washes it away. And it's really interesting to hold that lens up to knowledge worker activities and to see, uh, just how many knowledge worker activities are actually really not meaningfully accretive in any way. Except insofar as perhaps they leave like, oh, I remember I used that phrase in that conversation with that guy the other day. I'll try that again here. It's very weak. So uh, when I'm learning new things, uh, I write. Uh, that, that's one of the primary ways that I engage. The writing leads to Anki cards usually. That's, that's usually where the good ones come from. A kind of a first pass of um, space repetition questions may just come from direct engagement with the material. And, and I try to do something with it. I, I don't... I don't really believe in in just learning for its own sake. I, I think that often is uh, quite a distorted activity. Uh, I'm not going to get too into that. And so, and so in general, um, when I'm learning something, it's it's because I'm trying to do something, and, and I'm the, the material that I'm learning is kind of dancing with the environments in which I'm applying it. Yeah. And so, what are like what's an example question that might be in, in your Anki or? Uh, here's one from, from thinking about, um, uh, thinking about enhancements to, to books. I was having a conversation with someone and, um, an insight appeared, uh, in the conversation. The insight was, you know, if, uh, if I could see who else was reading this and, um, not only that, but I could also see what spaced repetition questions they created, or perhaps if the author provided them, what their demonstrated retention with those questions was, that creates an interesting new kind of proof of work. Um, it's an interesting new kind of engagement metric. It, it's a kind of like proof of memory, proof of attention. Where, for instance, if I saw some article online, is like Eric has not only read this article and like written some comments that took him two seconds. I don't really care about that. But a really strong signal is uh, when Eric wrote this article, he wrote seventy Anki cards and stuck with them 
and now has two months of demonstrated retention with all of those questions. Okay, so, so that was an insight. That turned into uh, a bunch of cards. So one of them might be, what might someone else's Anki card status on a given topic uh, tell you about their relationship to that topic? And that's not a that's not a definition question. That's not a vocabulary word question. That's to some extent it's an open ended question. Yeah. And the back of it has a whole bunch of jotted insights. It's not really meant to be. Um, you know, I'm going to hold my thought in any moment against what's on the back of that card. In fact, my hope uh, when I see cards like that is that I think of something uh, stimulated by that impulse uh, that actually isn't captured on the back. And that card is, there's like a whole bunch of cards that are like that, little prompts. And, and so on, on a very surface level, that means that, hey, that was like a useful insight from that conversation. It's not necessarily profound. I'm not going to like, you know, go off and change what I'm doing based on it. But that kind of thing happens all the time. And it's nice not to lose those things. Uh, people, people are, people want to collect. Uh, and so, so it's a kind of accretion. Uh, but it's also a, a mechanism for making something happen with that insight. It's a kind of programmable attention. And so maybe that's not a terribly actionable idea in that moment. I could decide to, well, I'm going to, tomorrow I'm going to schedule some time to like pull out my sketchbook and I'm going to like do some interface ideas around that. Or I'm going to like go on Google Scholar and see what's been done there. Neither of those things really feels appropriate. What feels appropriate here is marination. And so what's desired is, I just want to return to this in a month and see what new idea I have about it. And this is a way to program myself to do that. It's funny. I I use Twitter for some of those same purposes, just put ideas out there that I don't want to lose in sort of an idea journal and people engaging with it helps me sort of reprompt. I I should do some Anki version of of that, that I revisit some of these. Maybe, uh, you know, I, uh, right. Uh, So so one, one weird thing I've been playing with is this notional project called spaced everything that, um, Oh, this is a context in which I can talk about some of the metacognitive benefits of yeah, quantum country. So let me introduce that and I'll come back to spaced everything in your Twitter observation. Okay. So quantum country had a couple of like core hypotheses. You know, maybe it's the case that if you remember all these quantum terms as you're reading more durably, then you'll have an easier time learning quantum material and more people can engage with these ideas seriously. Maybe it's the case that this can be really cheap, like 30% of your original reading time and you just remember everything forever. And maybe it's the case relative to existing systems like Anki, there's a ton of benefit from interleaving this stuff into the prose. We had a whole bunch of theories about that. Um, Emotional connection, gradually building context, ways that the cards end up less atomized, so on and so forth. Uh, A whole bunch of unintended stuff happened, though. So uh, one user interview, a person saying, I read through this one section and then I was answering the quick questions that came back afterwards, and I realized I didn't remember any of these, and I had just read this material, and I sure thought I was absorbing it. Uh, so I stopped and I went back and I read it again. So that's interesting. That's monitoring, and um, it's filling in for some of the kind of decision-making, executive control. Different people have told us things like, uh, it makes me feel safe. I feel this sense of I'm in good hands. I don't need to stress about, am I going to remember this term or this, this idea, this process, this concept? Cause I just know that like as inevitably as a rock rolling down a hill, um, so long as I like roughly do what the emails tell me to do for a few minutes, I'm going to know all this stuff endlessly. And I don't really have to think about it. I don't have to plan. 
That's a really magical bit of metacognitive scaffolding. And it's something that I think is a broader benefit of spaced repetition systems than, than just memory. So I, I know from reading your Twitter that you're familiar with kind of getting things done like practices. One of the core tenets of getting things done <clears throat> is that you got to do these reviews, these triages really regularly because uh, it needs to be signal, not noise, um, in order for these systems to successfully allow you to close open loops. And the way that people achieve that is by going through their list regularly, um, hopefully daily, and making the core decision of getting things done. Or am I going to delegate it? Am I going to defer it? Uh, am I going to drop it? Am I going to do it? These are very discrete actions. Uh, what's very interesting about spaced repetition, not for memory, but just for anything, is that it lets you fuzz the edges of how you feel about these things. A lot of people simulate this with their email. They'll snooze an email for a day and then maybe for another day and then maybe guiltily for a week and so on and so forth. There's all kinds of interesting emotional stuff happening. To make the decision to drop a task in GTD is pretty hard. And it's one of the big challenges for people to actually maintain their inboxes. To make the decision to defer a task is pretty easy. Uh, but unfortunately, it'll just come up again when you deferred it later. So a lot of people will just defer a task for a week, and then it comes up, and they defer it for a week. An interesting middle ground for these things and for email is to just say, like, the equivalent of nah. Like, nah. Nah, I don't want to. And then it, uh, it just goes away. And um, it doesn't go away forever. So it's not the decision to drop. That's a hard decision to make. And nothing is really that certain in the kind of work that we do. It's just like, not, not where I am right now, not with what I'm doing. And then maybe it comes back a week later. And if you say, nah, again, it comes back two weeks later. And you say, ah, again, it comes back two months later. And eventually it's effectively dropped. But at no point did you make that decision to drop it. So I think it's very interesting to apply this to all kinds of things. I have a system for managing reading inboxes and kind of research questions I'm exploring that works based on these principles. And it's interesting also to apply it to, say, re-engaging in, in past discussions um, something you found really fruitful, you weren't quite sure what to say. Yeah. You know, maybe come back in a week. Do you feel like you have something now? Yeah. No? You know, uh, I remember reading it was Robert Persick's first book or second book, Zen and the Automotive Summit, and it's or Lila. And he talks about how his writing process was he would just write these note cards. That's in Lila, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then he would reorganize them. That's right. And um, I think Ryan Holiday or other people have, have copied that method too. It's sort of a similar process, like pre um, you know, online space repetition tools. Mm -hmm. Similar process just to see how different things might work differently, but also how, how they perhaps stimulate the mind. I find all of these practices super interesting. And in my own creative work, I am engaging in kind of uh, shape-shifting continuous adaptations of Zetelkasten and the like. And um, the ways in which they interact with spaced repetition is so interesting. Okay, so there's this core task in these systems, which is that when you add a note to the system, uh, you are obligated, if you follow the process, to connect it to a bunch of other notes. And that instigates a search. So you, uh, you, know, you go off like, oh, I think this one might be connected, maybe that one, you kind of flip through a bunch of stuff. And so you end up rereading these things. And what's cool about it from a comparison to Anki type thing perspective is that it's much more directed. And um, I don't know about you, but I do end up with kind of Stuff I don't really care about sometimes in Anki. And then I have to make this decision to drop it. That's a hard decision, just like we've been discussing, so I don't always do it. It's kind of bad, this technique. 
uh, ensures that the stuff you're looking through is like actually related to what you're caring about. The flip side is that the, um, these kind of expanding space repetition systems, they have this exponential character to them. That's really essential because, you know, I, I described in quantum country, it's like five days, two weeks, a month, two months, et cetera, because that's the schedule. It means that my carrying capacity for adding new material every day is super high. I have a constant Anki review time of 10 minutes or less a day. And yet I'm able to maintain thousands of cards in that deck. And I can add, I found uh, up to about 40 new questions a day um, before I perturb that. So 40, 40 new questions a day, 365 days a year, that is a lot of new stuff to throw into the system with apparently no limit to my memory. And it depends on that exponential exponential spacing. Whereas by contrast, um, not only do these, these node systems not have an exponential spacing character, they actually get more expensive with every note you write, um, because you have to potentially do a linear search through everything. I don't yet know what to do about that. So sort of leaning towards closing here, I want to get a sense for what are your sort of Requests for tools of thought, uh, you know, if that's what you're focused on, you and Michael are focused on, where, where do you see yourself, uh, your YouTube focusing on it? Like what, what's the next, you know, project or product? And then also if, you know, imagine sort of a, a hackathon or a sort of, you know, all these talented builders, designers, thinkers were coming to you and saying, Hey, we want to work in the space. What else should we do? Like what's your sort of call for call to art? What do you want to see people create in the space or see exist? To your first question, we're kind of using quantum country as a, a bit of a laboratory for experimenting with all kinds of questions around, uh, you know, memory systems, attention systems, things like that. So, um, there's a lot of stuff actually ongoing right now, uh, there that we're pretty excited about. We have, um, uh, a piece that is upcoming in the next few weeks, uh, that, that will, uh, outline a lot of that, um, uh, we have an essay where we talk about our, our next projects uh, in somewhat more detail, as well as our, our kind of our philosophy about how we're approaching this and, and what we think we know about creating transformative tools for thought that you know, maybe others don't, um, and which tries to answer the question, why has there been so little progress here? So to your question about the hackathons, uh, one of the claims that we make uh, is that the reason that there has been so little progress is that... Interfaces are as powerful as the ideas which they reify. And if you're a good designer, you can make a more powerful interface that represents some idea, um, assuming it hasn't already kind of reached the limits of that underlying idea. Certainly you could do this for Anki. Uh, its interface is atrocious in, in a lot of ways. The underlying idea has some room there. But what's really needed in many of these cases is powerful ideas. And um, too often the, the people who are trying to create tools for thought are fixated on the programming or the making the system, uh, whereas it's the thinking about the underlying idea which is being represented, which is actually the um, the differentiating, the challenging, the missing thing in many of these cases. And, and what's unique about this discipline, the creating of the tools for thought, these systems, is that actually the real insight, um, the real novelty, it, it lies in new ideas in this conjoined space between the underlying discipline, which in memory systems you could think of as cognitive science, and system building. So a new thing that is a mnemonic medium is an insight which has new ideas in cognitive science and new ideas in system building. And it's only reachable by someone who is 
willing to say do original research in that in that underlying discipline uh, and also to express that research in systems so that they can uh, move those ideas forward in ways which are not accessible uh, to members of that discipline. So a hackathon is not going to do it, is my summary. Maybe uh, one last question, and if it doesn't go anywhere, uh, that's fine. The uh, I'm curious, you know, you spent five years at Khan Academy. Yeah. How do you think about the future of education maybe different from how sort of, I don't know, a certain mainstream views the future of education or what's your different idea there? Okay. The triumph of education in the last 30 years has been raising the floor. Uh, if you look at the National Assessment of Educational Progress, boy, the story for African Americans, the story for lower class, sorry, lower income uh, students, boy, uh, is it just a wonderful success story. Obviously, there's still tons of disadvantages, um, but the relative progress for those demographies um, is, is just so exciting and fantastic. And that's the work of people in policy, people in technology, teachers on the ground, uh, superintendents and, and parents everywhere. And what's not moving so much is um, the other end of the spectrum. I don't really mean um, like the wealthy people aren't being more successful. It's actually, it's not a demographic thing at that point. Rather, it's that um, basically deep understanding of uh, materials. Uh, we're not, we're not really making much progress there. And um, I'm not optimistic about education technology as an industry, about learning science as a field uh, and making a lot of progress there. There's a lot of cultural incentives, which I think will make it challenging. I'm, I'm presently much more optimistic in, in trying, to, trying to help serious people trying to solve serious problems yeah. do that um, in hopes that um, insights there will help the upper ends of achievement. Yeah. I'm curious how you think about the here, the difference between sort of, sort of you know, augmenting individual intelligence versus sort of augmenting collective intelligence. And I, I see value of focus being on sort of, mm-hmm. you know, in, individual intelligence, but sort of this idea of, you know, Wikipedia isn't very good relative to what it, what it could be or, you know, sort of collected wisdom or, you know, you know we're all reading and curating and, mm-hmm. um, you know, talking about similar things, but it doesn't seem like we're really building on top of each other yeah. in, in thoughtful ways. I'm extremely excited about all these topics. You know, I mentioned Senius earlier. I mentioned Less Wrong earlier. Boy, what an interesting, weird little example. So powerful for this community. I mean, millions of dollars have been moved. Like, would would effective altruism exist without that very strange little blog? I think, like, yes, probably. But, boy, it would be so different. And at least in the Bay Area, its scope would... Uh, I think its scope would be radically different. I don't, I don't have great insights here, um, but I'm very excited about it. My guest today has been Andy Matushak. You can follow him on Twitter. Check out his latest piece with Michael Nielsen. And Andy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 